What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hey, 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 party people. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, episode 74. Hope everybody enjoyed their Memorial Day. More on that in a minute, but... You always want to remind you, you can find all of the show notes for these stories I'm going to talk about in the podcast today at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL74. Also, I want to remind you guys that if you are in LA, Mark and I will be speaking at the Los Angeles Libertarian Convention on June 2nd, along with uh, Michael Bolden. We'll be there. Uh, I got some stand-up comedy going on. I'm not going to be doing it, but you know my natural demeanor while I give my uh, my little talk will be somewhat upbeat and comical as per usual, as you would expect. So anyway, if you are here, come on out for that. Should be an interesting time. All right, into the show. So Memorial Day. I'm still hungover from it. <laughs> I'm sure many of you are as well. Um, but, you know, I, in general, the concept of Memorial Day is portrayed by the media. Obviously, we want to pay respect to those in the military that have given their lives for the freedoms, protecting the freedoms that this country enjoys. Unlike some people in the Libertarian Party, I do not believe that all soldiers are de facto murderers. I would never uh, go as far as to say that. But we have seen that America's goal, America's mission, and the and the role of our military has really been bastardized over these last, I don't even know, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, you look at, and I, and I brought this up in another podcast as well, you look at where our soldiers are dying around the globe. They're dying in small African countries where we can't figure out any, any way to really defend their presence being there. They're there in uh, doing special missions ops. They're there uh, assisting local rebel groups. They're over in Syria helping out al-Qaeda. You know, we're sending these kids. These Kids, basically, all over the world, they're dying for us. And you have to ask, I mean, is it literally something where their their lives are simply interchangeable for the lives of some random foreigner? Because it seems like they're dying far more for the foreigner's interest than for ours at home. And that's what I think of when I, when I think of Memorial Day. I say, how many times are these people that we're respecting today, how many times have they actually died defending our freedom, actually dying doing what they signed up for, what they were led to believe they signed up for. You know, it makes me pretty pretty sad to think about the number of people that sign up with good intentions, and even if they're not, even if it's just somebody that says, I need a job, and I'm willing to enter the military to pay my bills, I don't, or I don't know what I'm going to be doing with my life, I'm willing to, willing to go into the military for that. Fine. But to expect, at least at some level, to be defending the lives of people back home should be somewhere in the overall job description rather than, well, you know what? We feel like we need to uh, disrupt Russia putting in this, uh, this oil pipeline, which, which really, by the way, I think is the core of the Syrian issue going on. And now there's a pipeline that Russia is working on that would run through Syria and uh, they've already made some progress on it. 
that I think is why we're so involved over there because we don't want that pipeline to go through because then it would make it far easier for them to uh, to export their their gas and and everything else. So you know, from an American perspective, is that worth dying for to stop Russia from having a, a gas pipeline somewhere so far away that most Americans still can't find it on a map? And you look at <laughs> so John McCain. Uh, he recently, now that he's now that he's ill, now that he believes he's truly dying, recently came out and finally admitted that the Iraq War was a mistake. And I know this is slightly changing the topic from what I just was mentioning, but it again hits on this concept of Americans dying over in Iraq, two different wars in Iraq, which were massively supported by both ideological parties, other than libertarians, of course. And you've got John McCain now saying that war was a mistake and, quote, can't be judged as anything other than a mistake, a very serious one, and I have to accept my share of the blame for it. Yeah, you do have to accept your share of the blame, as is every other politician or every other general that's putting our troops in a position to go over there and die in droves and then stay over there and continue to be killed with no actually comes to defending the lives and freedoms of Americans. It's simply from the purpose of being lied into a war and then having now to stay there and rebuild this country, which we destroyed for no reason. All the meanwhile, fostering additional hatred towards the United States in the region as we continue to occupy Iraq, Afghanistan, still fuck around with Syria, and any number of these places. All the aid we're providing to Israel. At least, I mean, at least American troops aren't dying in Israel yet. God forbid they get in a war with Iran. You know, we'll be pumping troops over there in a second. But, you know, you've got Ron Paul, when he was in, when he was running for his candidacy, he was very outspoken and being anti-war. And, of course, who got the most donations? Ron Paul. By just leaps and bounds, outpaced all of his rivals as far as military donations, active service members, as well as retired service members. Because these people realize they're not buying into the concept of Memorial Day that's being pushed by the neoconservatives and the Hillary Clintons of the world where, yes, America's duty as a superpower is to go out there and sacrifice our lives for the good of all humanity. Bullshit. Your job is to protect American freedoms. And that doesn't involve going around the, going around the globe uh, to every hotspot and providing aid where you can get shot and killed Defending people that will never even know your name. But the U.S. continues to push this, continues to do massive shows. The media continues to do massive shows and uh, and force this, this concept that every American that dies anywhere in military service is automatically uh, to be cast as uh, a hero that is defending the rights of all Americans. Again, I don't want to besmirch the memory of these people. And these people didn't choose on their own to just fly over there. (laughs) I don't think anybody's jumping on to jet to Syria voluntarily at this point in time. So I don't want to, I don't want to cast a shadow over these people's memories, but I do want to point out that the mission as stated, the purpose of the military has been just so degraded, so expanded with the military industrial complex and the different pursuits that America views as vital, quote-unquote vital, that typically turn out to achieve nothing other than providing a brand new platform for terrorists to use when recruiting against us. And, you know, to kind of segue into another topic I wanted to talk about today, we're seeing this NFL uh, resolution now where the 
owners got together. They had a meeting and they decided, I, I think I think it was unanimous except for the Jets, actually, that they voted to restrict players' abilities to take a knee during the national anthem. Of course, the national anthem and the giant flag being taken out on the field and all of that other jingoistic garbage, that got put into place about 10 or 12 years ago. They didn't used to do this. They didn't. They, the players were never on the field for the national anthem. Only about 10 or 12 years ago, when the military got together, the different branches, the army, the Marines, the Navy, they all, you know, they kind of take turns deciding who's going to be on the field to sing the national anthem in their uniform. Only when that happened, when they got involved and started funding the NFL to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars a year per team, I believe, only then did you start to have this this issue come up. Only then did you start to have these flag-waving ceremonies come up and singing of the Star-Spangled Banner and, all, you know, the breaks. So it used to just be, the you know, you'd hear our national anthem, and then that was it. You know, okay, stand up, put your hat on your chest, and then you sit down, and then the players come out on the field. Now they have the secondary break. You know, now they have the halftime show of patriotism. You know, they really ramped up the patriotism because they were seeing a drop in military recruitment. They wanted to jazz that up. Let's get people back on the side of the military. So, of course, they're dumping money into it. And as it follows, clearly we see the NFL was going to support the military money that's coming in. They're going to tell the players, no, you can't do that. And that is their right. As a business, that is their right. Now, it does become more complicated because you are saying, all right, well, if the military is is pretty much controlling policy within the NFL by virtue of these dollars, is that something where it's infringing on free speech from a governmental standpoint? It could be argued as such. I'm not going to take that strong of an opinion on it uh, because I, I mean, look. The NFL is a business, a sponsor is a sponsor, and any number of sponsors can can ask somebody whether the government or not to do something. So I won't say that it's illegal in that respect, but it certainly is a gray area that I think could be pushing the boundaries a little bit of what should be considered legal or illegal and whether or not the national or excuse me, the federal government is in fact stepping onto uh, First Amendment rights by virtue of military money. But from the NFL's perspective, look, I don't want a product of mine to be drawing all sorts of negative uh, coverage, having people breathlessly waiting to see who's going to sit or, or kneel during the national anthem. I mean, if I'm putting forward a brand, I want that brand to be viewed in a certain light, as do the sponsors. So I think the option they came up with, they said, look, you're not allowed to kneel on the field, but you can stay in the locker room if you want. Fine. Seems like a perfectly reasonable uh, agreement to to come to. And I, and these people that are saying, oh, it's a, well, this is an assault on free speech. No, it's not. Because you know what? The players can still do that. And this concept of free speech having no consequences or ramifications, if you don't understand that free speech comes with consequences, you need to pull your head out of your ass. The right to free speech doesn't mean the right to avoid any sort of backlash against that free speech or response to that free speech. These players still have the option you know, they can't, it's, they can't use the Nuremberg defense. Ah, well, I was just following orders. Look, if you want to go out there, or a Sarge was bad faith, uh, if you want to go out there, you can still walk out with the team and you can still take a knee and you accept the consequences of those actions. But that's your right to do that. If you would like to do that, you can still go on social media and talk about it. You can still do media interviews and talk about it, but you accept the consequences of those actions where it comes to a private business. And I also look to this recent uh, Roseanne flap 
that's the other thing I want to get into before we dive into some of these other topics regarding electronic surveillance and uh, and uh, ice, ice, ice babies. But recently, as of yesterday, Roseanne, the new rebooted version of Roseanne, has been canceled. Now, I don't know how much you have watched that show. I don't know if you watched the original out there listening to this right now, but Roseanne was and is an important show. It was it was one of the few shows that really did a great job of capturing what the American family was and is still in current America today, where it's not just cut and dry. Oh, everybody's happy and has very progressive views and yada, 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 yada. It did a good job of addressing concerns that Americans had. I mean, I only watched the first couple episodes of the reboot, but I enjoyed them. I thought they were actually very well done. They addressed the issue of having a, a child that is trans... I don't even know what you call it yet. It was, you know, it was basically a, a boy who wanted just like a girl. Who knows if that kid is gay yet? Who knows if that kid's transgender yet? Who kn- Maybe the kid just likes to wear women's clothing. I don't know. Maybe it's a face. Maybe it's not. But they brought it up on the show, and they addressed the issues that follow with that. This kid's choice to wear those clothes, the parents allowing this to happen, and then going to school and having the, the issues that crop up from that, like bullying, etc. And they handled a very real, straightforward way, but also a very funny way. So Roseanne then went on Twitter Tuesday and she tweeted uh, some pretty negative comments, pretty racist comments about Valerie Jarrett. Jarrett was a top aide to President Obama in his term and Roseanne was having a Twitter feud with her and essentially made fun of her looks. And what she said was that the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes got together and had a baby and that's what Valerie Jarrett looked like. Now immediately... Anything regarding comparing somebody of uh, African-American black heritage to an ape is, I mean, you're, you're touching the third rail. Like that, That's it. You're dead. You're just purely dead. And Roseanne said, oh, you know, I've apologized. That clearly went too far. It was supposed to be a joke. Acknowledging that I do not personally think Roseanne's racist. Um, and I do think that she was trying to make a joke, but it's just, it's so tone deaf. It, well, number one, it's not funny. <laughs> Um, you know, that's one of those things you get away with a lot. If it's actually funny, this is not funny and it is racist. I mean, anytime you, like I said, anytime you're comparing an African-American to an ape, uh, it is going to have this exact reaction for her not to understand that is shocking, especially in this environment. So ABC somewhat surprising because the show is, was doing really well, had pulled the plug, but then you have immediately all these assholes, these progressive dickheads calling and saying, oh, well, you know, John Goodman's complicit in this and Sarah Gilbert's complicit in this. The other stars of the show, as if they have anything to do with Roseanne's tweets and what's going on in Roseanne's mind. But because they're on a show that has the balls to take two different sides of an issue or multiple sides of, of issues and actually look at them in a realistic way, well, now they have to be uh, tarred and feathered and crucified so all can see that ah, thou darest not go against progressive values. So all this is, is very sad. So it, this show's canceled now. Um, and I now I worry as well that the older episodes of Roseanne, which is one of the shows that's still on in syndication very often, and it's still a very funny show uh, with a lot of very interesting topics covered. So we're probably going to see those shows all get pulled as well. This is just so sad to me on a lot of levels because, like I was saying, Roseanne was a show that really, it it was shocking when ABC brought it back, knowing what it was and knowing what a vocal critic of, uh, or I'd say a vocal supporter of Trump, Roseanne was. 
So when it came back and when it did so well, it really did provide a little bit of a, a ray of hope in regards to content that can go out there, content that can be more honest, content that isn't just pushing a specific point of view towards people and trying to advocate rather than entertain or trying to advocate rather than illuminate just different perspectives on current day America. And Roseanne as a show, it was fantastic at doing that. And so now what we're going to see though, is that all the critics of the show and all the critics of Roseanne are going to say, you see that you see this show, this fucking brilliant show up. We knew it all along. Roseanne's a racist. Any Trump supporter is a racist. And anyone that thinks that these issues can be looked at from a perspective of somebody that thinks or acts like Roseanne or Trump obviously is wrong and obviously is a racist. And now we can discount all of their ideas. That is what I fear the fallout of this is going to be because Roseanne gave these people exactly what they wanted. I mean, God damn it, woman. Just, uh, just, you, you just put your fucking foot right in a giant pile of dog shit. You know, like these prisoners waiting for you to step in that pile of shit. They're sitting in their window, looking out, just waiting and watching you know, they trot the dog out every few hours to take a big dump, and then they just wait for her to step in, and, and God damn if she didn't do it. So now, how, are we going to see any of these shows moving forward? Probably not. If you have somebody that's on that political bent that they know has a, a very outspoken mindset, like a Roseanne or like a, like a me, it's made my job so much harder. It's made anybody's job infinitely harder that isn't just a progressive honk to try to pitch a show in which you can actually portray an American family in any other way other than the prime and pretty progressive proper. The PPPP. So that is my take on Roseanne. Like I said, it, it's, it sucks. It just really sucks. It's a show that, uh, that has been cut down in its prime. I hope sometime the rest of the episodes will see the light of day. And, and you know, it's just too bad for the whole cast. They were an incredible ensemble cast. Lots of people came out of their like virtual retirement and resuscitated their careers. Had a, an incredibly diverse cast as well. And uh, adios. Happy trails, Roseanne. Back to the macadamia farm. All right, let's take a quick break. And we'll be back to discuss some of the news of the day. We don't rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com. Once again, that is conversationmattime.com. All right, welcome back to Electric Liberty Land, episode 74. By the way, I want to add a little something on about conversation mat time. Uh, If you guys want to try it, we were just talking to that sponsor, and they said they actually, if you want to call them or reach out to them, they will do a free 15-minute 
consultation with you as well. Can't do the full 25 because you need to have a, a scripted, you, know, you don't want to get your script, want to get what you want to talk about out there. But just to give it a try, get in there and see what we're talking about here. If you reach out to them, 15 minutes, get started. And uh, like I said, I mean, that's it's a pretty awesome idea. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Okay, so let's get back into this. Uh, you know, I was talking about John McCain finally coming out and admitting that he was wrong and Ron Paul was right. And uh, I did want to tell you guys, we're planning on doing a uh, a live drinking MST Liberty 3K, kind of like we did with uh, for our Pride members with uh, They Live, classic, libertarian classic film with Rowdy Rowdy Piper. But we are going to be doing a live version of that where we're going to watch the movie. We're going to record a podcast, uh, razzing on it. And uh, oh, the movie I'm talking about, by the way, is the John McCain documentary, which has Joe Biden in it. Kissing John McCain's ass. Oh, it's going to be a hoot. It's going to be some angry, drunken, uh, funny commentary. So we will, I'll let you guys know when that actually comes together. It's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. And uh, that's going to be for our our uh, patrons, which we are on Patreon now, guys. So if you're on Podbean supporting the show, thank you so much. But get your asses over to Patreon because that's where it's at. Got much better audio quality. We got a video that we're posting on there now, too. So all the goodies for your Liberty Easter basket can be found there. All right, coming back to the show, let's talk a little bit about this new uh, European GDPR, which is essentially a, a, a very wide-spanning European data privacy measure that's just been put into place. I think it went into place on May 25th. On the surface, we'd say, okay, this is good. Because clearly we don't want our data being hacked into. We want we want protections in place. Now, what's funny about this, of course, is that you know these Europeans are taking these steps. The government is still going to be taking your data and using your data. And, and I, we, as we know from the Ed Snowden uh, expose, illegal expose, and for which he still has not been forgiven by the U.S. government, but he's forgiven in my heart. That the government is is just massively collecting uh, huge webs of data and is trawling them in. They are tuna trawling our data in there, and then they're reaching out to third party providers like Google, uh, like the Googles <laughs> and uh, the Amazons of the world, not only to help them decipher that data, but also to help them to store that data. Basically, like the government right now is talking to Amazon about storing on its cloud servers all of our data. So isn't that great to know? But this GDPR legislation, which went through, it puts in place protections for the public wherein it's now you, now more explicit consent you have to give to allow people to access your data and to be able to market that data and sell it to advertisers or market researchers or, or anything else. Again, that on the surface, that sounds great. But the concern that crops up here is the exact same concern that happens with like banking regulations. And what we've seen with a lot of these industries or just broader business regulations that, that get put into place. Because what happens is that you've got the Googles, you've got the Microsofts, you've got the Yahoos, you've got the uh, Amazons of the world. They are massive companies that can afford to pay people to go through the leaps and bounds to afford the regulations, to, to cater to the regulations, to make sure that, that they're complying with the regulations. And they're also so big that you're not going to hesitate. Like if Google sends you an email saying, hey, if you want to use Google, you have to click you consent to us being able to, to look at your data. Now, 99.9 of the population is going to say, yeah, whatever, and just click to go through because they don't really care. 
And for those of us who do care, even we're going to be getting, I, I look, I'll be honest, even we're going to get lazy about it. If there's something I say, look, I just want to get through, I, you know, it's, if it's a program I rely on and I'm using it every day and they send me something that says, look, you have to acknowledge that we can market certain aspects of your data to these companies or these third-party vendors. I'm more likely to just to click, okay, whatever, and, and move on with it. And that's the way it should be as a business. But what happens is that that's going to start to trickle down and make life far more difficult for smaller companies that are trying to come up and compete with the bigger agencies or that these smaller companies are trying to innovate with different apps and different uh, – I mean, any number of applications across the internet because they can't afford, number one, all of the uh, the regulatory measures to make sure that they're they're covered, but also – you're less likely to say, okay, yes, you can use my data. And if their model happens to be based on data mining through uh, through an app, I don't know, through through crushing slugs and uh, different colored slugs on your phone or something like that, you're less likely to say okay to that, which means it's less likely for them, them to get money or have any momentum behind them because their whole model is predicated on access to that data. So what's going to happen? That means that Essentially, innovation is going to be left to these big companies, and we're going to see competition in the marketplace die out. So I have a, you know, I, I have a big problem with this, and I'm curious to see what's going to happen as far as the American side, because this is only in Europe as of right now. So something to watch. Um, clearly, we all value our privacy and our data. We all see how Facebook had <laughs> quite, uh, quite overstepped their bounds as far as what they're doing with our data. But at the same time, People are still using Facebook. People are still clicking I accept every time a little window pops up on anything without reading the fine print. I know I do it. I'm sure all of you do it. I do scroll through a lot of them just to just to double check. But I mean, if it just seems like general ad, data practices, data mining, then whatever, man. So this all kind of comes down to a little bit of uh, it's all going to be fine now patting people on the head. Meanwhile, stifling entrepreneurship uh, in a way that that may not be great a little bit down the road. All right. Next topic. Let's get into a little bit of the Ice Ice Baby action. And, of course, I'm not talking about Vanilla Ice. I am talking about, I'm going to mess this chick's name up, uh, Kirsten Nielsen. Actually, that wasn't too hard. Kirsten with a J in the middle. Always tricky. But uh, she is the Homeland Security Secretary. And she had testified back in April that there were about 1,500 kids which were well, first, the media is reporting them as missing or lost, and it turns out that it's not quite that simple, but it is simply that they can't get in touch with their sponsor families or family members or whoever seems to be hosting these children in, in the United States after they were placed with them after being separated from their parents or that they came to the border alone and were then put into foster care, put with different different sponsor families. And this all stems from a practice wherein... We are, there's a, a mass amount of people migrating up from South and Central America right now. These are Mexicans. These are Guatemalans. These are, I, I mean, just an incredibly large amount of people from various countries. So it's not just Mexico we're talking about here. But we've got this mass migration of people coming up. And throughout the last five, seven years, because this goes all the way back to 2009 under Obama, it has been the practice of the Homeland Security to basically when these kids get to the border, if they are unaccompanied, the United States takes them in and puts them into foster care. Uh, or they try to find another family member that they can put them into, into place and have them watch over them. 
Alternatively, what also happens is that they separate parents and children at the border, or if they catch parents in the United States illegally, they put them in custody, they put the children in foster care. And this, they say, is a very strong deterrent from people trying to come in with their kids, because a lot of people would come in and they know, they say, okay, well, the kids are going to be American citizens. So while I do agree, it probably is a strong deterrent to rip your children away from you and put you in jail and then stick them in foster care system. Holy crap, is that barbaric. I mean, I think that as difficult as our situation is, and, and I don't have an answer for this problem, by the way, because this is the, the problem that is presented here. And I was just discussing this on a on another podcast that a comedian buddy of mine runs um, just a couple of days ago, actually, called Up Close and Political. But the issue that stems up here is that you've got a mass amount of kids coming into the system, and none of these kids are citizens. However, what are you going to do with them? You know, you don't want to simply leave them on the border to starve. You can't deport them because their parents are in jail in America. Or if you can deport them, I guess then you'd have to try to find a way to reunify them. So you're, you've got a real conundrum. And I don't, I don't think the prescription for this is simply to, to jail the parents and, and put the kids in foster care because the foster care system in America is absolutely abominable. You know, I've mentioned this organization many a time, but I work with CASA. Uh, court-appointed special advocates, and they're an organization that works with foster children within the system, many of whom, if not virtually all of whom, uh, have experienced some level of abuse, neglect, et cetera. They're in the system for a reason. And the system is vastly overburdened, especially in Los Angeles, where there's over 30,000 foster kids in the child welfare system. So you've got this, this system that's already taxed beyond what it can handle. And the statistics coming from this are shocking. Like almost, I think 60% of people in the uh, criminal system in Los Angeles were former foster youth. You've got something like 25, 30% of the homelessness. Uh, Those are former foster youth. You have people that are in sex trafficking. Those are foster youth. Uh, It's just, the numbers are staggering as far as the outcomes for these kids, because what ends up happening is not only do they not have enough foster families to take care of them, they don't have enough infrastructure as far as group homes, uh, they don't have enough infrastructure as far as people being in the system working for the government that are able to track these children and make sure that they follow up with them, you know, caseworkers. So that's where a private organization like CASA comes in and is incredible help. So by the way, uh, donate some money to your local CASA branch, guys. It's a fantastic cause. Now, the thing is, if you look at it this now, though, their, their policy of saying, okay, well, we're going to jail the adults for uh, an extended amount of time and prosecute them. Okay, great. So that's just putting more people in the prison system, which then is going to cost more money in taxes. And, and that's where I look at I look at the, the cost benefit of saying, okay, I'm not advocating for open borders because I do hate the welfare state. And I do think it's a huge issue as far as uh, overburdening our school system more than anything here. But What's the cost of employing all the border guards, the, the prisons to keep these people in there, to prosecute them? How much of the legal team? Like, the, what's the dollar ratio versus taking these people in, uh, giving them a temporary visa, and then taxing them and saying, okay, now we're going to keep track of you. We're going to follow up with you and make sure that you're not going to be staying in here legally like, and keep tabs on these people. But give them a visa. Give them a reason to work. Give them an ability to work and pay into the system from a perspective where, okay, at least you're part of a functioning community. At least you're part of a functioning ecosystem. 
And at least you know where they are, and you're not just ripping children away and shoving them in foster care while you detain these people. And then that's where we get to the cost of foster care for these kids. Finding a place for these kids. So the story blew up because the, the lead was the you know, Homeland Security lost 1,500 kids, and it's trended on Twitter, hashtag, where are the children? And people are saying that the Trump administration is the goddamned evilest thing in the world for doing this, this horrible practice. Can you believe that Donald Trump would sink so low? And it's going around with a picture of just kids in kind of these, these holding cells, like dog kennels. Now, of course, the problem is that photo was from 2014 when Obama was in office. And the bigger problem is that it goes all the way back to about 2009 when this, this really started happening. You, you know, they started, especially the story about just losing touch with a lot of these kids, not being able to get in touch with the sponsors again, not being able to find the families, not knowing where these kids are. And by the way, that's not unusual in the foster care system. Because especially when you have children that are, they, who knows how old they are, who knows what's going on, who knows what the sponsor families they're being placed with are. Because a lot of times, to try to find a family member to place them with, you have to go sometimes pretty deep into the bench. And then who knows if that person, how, how capable they are? Who knows if they're going to go back to Mexico? Who, I mean, you just, there's so many unknowns in regards to this process. And the kids on their own, maybe. Yes, may be getting sex trafficked, or they may have just gone back to Mexico to live with family back there after they were separated from their parents. You just don't know, and there's almost no way to keep keep close track on that. But just the practice at the heart of it, of using people's children against them as a deterrent, is so abhorrent. Just, if there's anything you could say is un-American, it's that. Taking away people's liberty by throwing them in a cage for trying to come into a country to work and then denying them access to their children for God knows how long. And the other thing is, after these people are prosecuted or detained or deported or whatever else, can you imagine that horror of not being able to find out where your kid is? So the government not only took your child away, but now the government can't give it back to you. That's what America's doing right now. And like I said, I don't have a solution for this past my personal viewpoint that it, everything should just be opened up. I, you know, I, Gary Johnson had very few points that I really liked about his campaign platform, but his immigration policy was one of them. And that was basically to open up the amount of visas and work permits for people and allow people to come in and work for you know however many years, but have those, those permits so they could go back and forth across the border to make money. But that way, at least they're in the system. At least you're not just detaining them and tearing their children away in and, and, and droves. Ah, depressing, depressing situation. So let's end up, let's do one more story. Like I said, I'm a little, I'm a little rough for wear today. So this is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, guys. I do apologize for that. But uh, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> you, you lucky people that are giving us money, though, I'm going to do a bonus episode for you because I love you. So you'll get that in a couple of days a later this week. Oh, you know what? One thing I forgot to say before I get into this final story. I should have said this at the top of the show when I was talking about Memorial Day, but I was surprised. Actually, I wasn't surprised. When I went to Google on Memorial Day, and usually Google does all these animated fancy things for all these little progressive uh, little little gods and goddesses, whatever their, their chosen progressive philosophy 
God of the day is. It happens to have a birthday on that day. If it was a civil rights mover, mover uh, movement leader, excuse me. If it was somebody who made some scientific discovery, great. They'll do a whole animated graphic for them. Memorial Day, just regular old Google lettering. <laughs> There's a little, a little tiny flag, uh, like an inch under it. That's like Happy Memorial Day, and if you click it, it has like a little stars and stripes banner along the top of the the Google page of results you go to. Just you know, it was telling in that Google pretends that it's this it's uh, unbiased search engine, but Google's biased as hell, man. And then you can see it come out like their politics are on display there. That that Google lettering is where you can see the insight into Google's soul, and clearly Google does not like Memorial Day is, is not a big fan of a, of a militaristic celebration and Hey, neither am I, but, uh, I, it just entertained me. So I wanted to bring it up. <laughs> and, and of course today, by the way, they have the guy who invented the pH scale with a whole animated cartoon thing you could do in a little game. You can play with it. It's anyway, interesting. Okay. So we got to talk about Italy and what's going on there right now, because this, uh, this shit is bonkers. So what we have going on over in Italy is, Sergio Mattarella, I should say these super Italian to piss people off. Sergio Mattarella, who was installed by a, a president as a from a previous coalition, a pro-European Union government, has kiboshed a new coalition made up of a populist movement called Five Star and a more right side uh, movement. It's, they're saying far right, but I don't know who if that means anything these days. But called the League, who had tried to put a coalition together. Uh, and then put forward a finance minister, which the president said no to, who was named Paolo Savona, who was an 81-year-old and was incredibly Eurosceptic. Essentially, he was a proponent of getting Italy out of uh, the EU, and I guess their Italy was fear was that they were going to have kind of a Brexit situation coming with Italy. So the president, who was a big fan of the EU, he said no to that which has now caused all sorts of strife within the marketplace and instead is moving forward with somebody who is a former International Monetary Fund economist as uh, interim prime minister, who's basically what he wants to do is forward a, uh, a technocratic style of government. And hold on, I got to flick to a different webpage to find out what this man's name is. Carlo Cattarelli is the guy who's going to be stepping in to run a technocratic government. Essentially, technocratic government, if you don't know what that is, is more emphasis on science, trying to put people in the positions who have a deep, great deal of knowledge in a particular topic or uh, or industry, etc., to oversee that aspect of the government, uh, which you'd think would be a good way to run it, but it, these things tend not to work out that well. So the problem with this, though, is that you've got a Eurosceptic finance minister that has now been essentially told he will not be able to take the position because the president personally doesn't agree with that that uh, nomination as put forth by two of these populist parties that had the enough, they had enough power to do it the reason they're doing a coalition is because nobody had enough of the uh, the juice from the last parliamentary elections to actually take control but kind of like you see in germany you have unified coalitions of of groups that decide okay we're going to go ahead and take power in this way so that was the plan and they are, but they're rightly calling for the president to be impeached here. They're calling for a new referendum and a new election to take place because you simply can't have a figure of power say, well, I unilaterally am going to decide the direction of the country and I'm going to decide the direction of our economy and, and what we're involved with on this massive scale. And being involved in the European Union is massive. 
And also it harkens to the overall complaint with the European Union that all the people in uh, in Britain had and that a lot of these Italians have, which is that they are not getting to actually have representation by virtue of their voting. Because with England, so many people had voiced the fact that all of these regulations being passed on to them, all of these different uh, leaps and bounds and, and barriers and bureaucrats that they had to check in with were not elected. They were simply hired on and named into position by people outside of the country and now had so much power and so much say over them. And we're seeing that play out in Italy right now because you've got a president who is a Euro fan. He wants to stay within the European Union. And while he has been in, you know, he's been put in place by a previously elected government, this new coalition is trying to change that. And like I said, they have enough power within that parliamentary system to do it, but he is unilaterally saying no. And so they are now saying, okay, you're just a tool of the European you know, massive nation state. This thing's become this, this, this sprawling, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. Well, union, <laughs> I guess. But it, it harkens back to the base complaints that, no matter what we do on a local level now, we are being trumped by this allegiance to this international coalition. And that is crazy. So I would be very interested to see if this president is gone. I mean, they're calling for another set of elections within a, within the month. From Well, at least from some reports I'm reading. Like I said, this thing is kind of changing by the day. And in the meantime, this technocratic uh, government prime minister that's going to take over in the interim, I don't see how he's going to get anything done. Because you know now these populist parties that had enough to to put forth at least this finance minister, they're going to be opposing everything he does as well as opposing the president. They'll be calling for his impeachment, calling for uh, new referendums to take place. And all of this action is just going to jazz up further furor over the the concept at the core, which again is this, this lack of influence on things that are happening on a macro level. I mean, you can't as an Italian in, uh, investor have any faith in the market right now. And we saw it. I mean, the markets completely crashed when this, when this happened in the wake of this news. And they're still down despite soothing words from the new interim prime minister. They're still well down because you simply don't know what's going to happen. And until this is resolved, you're not going to, but I certainly hope that when things get resolved, the current president is out of there as far as Italy is concerned. Because this is more of an action of a dictator than somebody that is actually respecting the will of the people. And, you know, we're seeing in Brexit situation, too, uh, the the bureaucrats at the top of the food chain fighting tooth and nail to go against the wishes of the voting populace in regards to pulling out of the European Union and of Brexit. So, you know, this is just playing out all over Europe. And I think you're going to see as more of these dominoes fall, I really do think you're going to see more and more countries exiting and you're going to see more of these these uh, specific situations cropping up. So what I'm going to be taking a close look at is exactly what kind of actions are taken, like this president took, like what's happening over in the Brexit situation, and to see how much power do people really have. We're going to get a full education in that. And we're going to get a full education in the underhanded countermaneuvers that the people in charge on the highest levels that don't want to give up their unelected power will will uh, push forth. All right. Well, hopefully some of that made sense on some level was that it's, it's so hard to think after a long, long few days of uh, exuberance. 
and lack of sleep. So, guys, thank you so much for coming along on the ride today. Uh, if you would love to share the podcast with a friend, I would be much obliged. Tell somebody about it. We are trying to grow. You can help us grow, of course, by coming supporting us at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. Jump on our Patreon there. We will be going, as I said, Mark and I will be at the Los Angeles Libertarian Convention, if you can make it out to that. But we will also be going to Porkfest, the old uh, Roger Paxton down there. We're going to be doing some uh, very entertaining shows in that region. And then also, Mark and John Odermatt are going to be heading out to uh, New Orleans for the Libertarian National Convention. And they'll also be covering uh, pretty in-depth the Mises Caucus that's taking place there as well, and their counter-event, if you will. And by the way, if you did not hear Mark's last couple interviews and last couple podcasts on Mondays, he had the basically the top three at the time uh, for the national chair. That was Nick Sawark, Joshua Smith, Smith, and Alicia Dern. But Alicia Dern has dropped out in order to join. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the party, like the Unified Party or something like that. Um, so I, I we'll have to see what happens with that party as well, but. So it's pretty much the top two there, and now there's a, a third runner that I'm sure will squeeze into the race. But also, he just had a debate between the vice chairman positions, and that was uh, Arvin Vora, that was Alex Merced, that was, and also like three others. I'm too tired to remember the rest. So check those out, guys. It is vital listening if you are a delegate, if you are a, a member of the Libertarian Party, or just damn curious as to what is going on with the party. Make sure you listen into those interviews. And of course... Don't forget to listen to John Odermatt on Fridays with Felony Fridays. All right, guys, that's going to do it from me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land. Always stay plugged in to liberty. <laughs>